Hear now God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 16, continuing our study in this book. Pay close attention. This is the word of the Lord. Now Yahweh said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But Yahweh said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you and give you thanks for your word. And we give you thanks for your Holy Spirit that opens our ears and opens our hearts to receive your word. And so, Father, we pray for a double portion of your spirit today. Fill us that we might hear what you have to say to us through your holy scriptures today. And fill me with your spirit that I might deliver it well, that I might speak it articulately. And help me to forget everything that's in error or not helpful. But may we only hear those things which are good and pleasing in your sight. And so, Father, bless us now for Jesus' sake. Amen. People of God, whenever there's a time of crisis or conflict, there are two personality types that come right to the surface. Almost without fail, every single time, there's the excuse maker and the responsibility taker. Whether it's a headache at work or a breakdown of customer service or a mess in the home, instantly one of these two people appear either the excuse maker or the responsibility taker. The excuse maker is skilled at disassociating himself or herself from the center of the problem. They do everything they can to convince you that they're as far away from the cause of the problem as is humanly possible. You know this because they quickly point out everyone and everything you ought to be blaming who's not them. It, it, it is that other person, they say, or that other factor, or that other set of circumstances, but it had nothing to do with me. They excuse themselves from the spotlight, from the guilt, and from the expense of dealing with the fault. The responsibility taker, on the other hand, assumes ownership over the turmoil. And whether or not he's 100% liable, whether or not he's 100% guilty, he is 100% engaged in the solution. He is 100% available to fix whatever is wrong. The responsibility taker owns his own failure. He owns his own blind spots. He owns his own frailties and shortcomings. He admits when he messes up and he does everything he can to make it right. And often he'll even assume responsibility for the failures of others. He'll clean up their messes too. We deal with these two responses from children all the time when we're engaged and we're in the trenches and trying to raise godly men and women. We want to produce young men and women who are the kind of people who take responsibility. But we're always fighting the force of gravity and the force of gravity is the nature of our father Adam who made excuses and Eve who made excuses. Our fallen human nature is quick to make excuses so that you don't even have to train it into our children. They immediately, they immediately start this way. When you call their name, 
You just know they have a guilty conscience. Hey, Bobby, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. It wasn't me. What? Supper's ready. What, what, what didn't you do? <laughs> what, what do you know that I don't know? We, we hear this in the way that the uh, children naturally put themselves into this role of passive spectators to everything that's going on around them. Nothing is uh, their fault. They're not the agent of destruction. Destruction just happens all around them. So you're cleaning up after supper and uh, everybody's engaged in clearing the table and a plate crashes to the floor. You say, what happened? Well, it slipped out of my hand. It ran away. The plate grew a conscience. It became sentient and it fled from my grasp. No, the plate didn't slip. You dropped the plate. You see, I am the agent here. I am the one taking responsibility. I did it. The plate didn't do it. I did it. It's important to correct. It's very subtle, but it's important to correct that and say, I did it. Now, it's just a plate. We'll make more plates. We'll buy more plates. It's fine. It's just a plate, but own it. I dropped the plate. They come in from playing outside and both knees are ripped out of the pants. And you say, what happened? Well, I was playing and my pants tore. Like they just tore. I just stood there and lo and behold, the (laughs) knees just blew right out of my pants. No, I tore my pants. I slid and I tore my pants. Well, good for you. I'm glad you're getting dirty. I'm glad you're, I'm glad you're playing hard. It's just pants, but take responsibility. And that's a lesson all of us need to learn that things don't just happen around. We're not passive spectators to the things happening around us. We're agents and we take responsibility for these things. There's an art there in training our children to take responsibility and being consistent in our discipline. But we don't want to respond in such a way that they're terrified to take responsibility. If I take responsibility, mom is going to shoot me. No, no. You take responsibility, I'm going to love you and I'm going to respect you for taking responsibility. And then we're going to make it right and we're going to fix it. Well, we're coming, and the reason I bring this up, this, this contrast between the responsibility taker and the excuse maker is we're coming to a transition in our study in 1 Samuel. And I want to kind of stop and just wrap up and put a bow on the life of Samuel as we begin the story of David. Because we've seen these two characters highlighted and exposed time after time over the last several chapters of our study. King Saul has obviously become an excuse maker throughout the last several scenes of his life. He didn't start out that way. And this is what's so disappointing about Saul. He started out so well. The very first time we see Saul, he's taking responsibility for his father's animals. Remember his father's donkeys had run off and he went after them. And then we see as as soon as he's anointed, Nahash the Ammonite. Saul is not even crowned king yet. His coronation hasn't happened. And Nahash the Ammonite comes and he starts threatening God's people. And King Saul takes responsibility. He blows the trumpet and he, he, he calls the militia and they go out and they attack Nahash the Ammonite. He started out so well, but now he's changed. And every time he's confronted with his failure, it's somebody else's fault. It's the people, it's the Philistines, it's Samuel taking his sweet time and not getting here in time to sacrifice. It's the, it's the army who doesn't keep my foolish vow. It's everybody else's fault except for Saul. He blames and he points fingers, but he doesn't take any responsibility for anything, which is understandable in a three-year-old. He's the king. 
That's his job. It's actually in his job description. If you're the king, you take responsibility. Everything is your problem. There's nothing outside of your responsibility. Uh, if there's a problem, it's your problem. But Saul, the king, flees responsibility. And in contrast to Saul, we have Jonathan, his son, who repeatedly initiates conflict with the Philistines. He faithfully leads God's people into battle. And Jonathan takes up responsibility for the mission that God gave his family. Jonathan is a responsibility taker. Samuel, too, takes responsibility. He's been taking the responsibility to lead and to shepherd Israel. Ever since Eli, the high priest, died, it's been Samuel carrying the load and, and reforming and, and shaping Israel and leading Israel to love God and love God's law. And now we find Samuel at this place mourning over the failure that Saul has become. God said, I'm going to strip the kingdom from Saul. Because of this third failure in a row, Saul's done. It's over. And Samuel is mourning. He's taken responsibility for this situation. When we last saw Samuel, he had wept all night over the sins and the rebellions of Saul. Samuel is a man who takes failure and disappointment seriously and personally. Saul was very much like a son to Samuel. And so Samuel is grieving for the failure that Saul is, but also for all the potential and all the blessing he has squandered. At this point, Samuel is an old man. In just a few chapters, we're going to read about the death of Samuel. And so it seems like everything that Samuel has worked his whole life for is now falling apart here at the end. Maybe he thought at the end of his life, he'd get a chance to rest a little bit and enjoy the fruit of his labors. Um, but he's not going to get that. There's more strife before there's, before there's going to be that rest. And, and a component of Samuel's grief must have been, what could I have done differently to help Saul not get to this point? What could I have said that would have penetrated Saul's heart to get him to be faithful? I mean, he's, he's distraught and he's beside himself and he's, he's learning the hard way that you can't control people. You can lead people, you can encourage people, you can speak truth to people, but you can't control them. And Samuel couldn't control Saul. Saul was his own man and Saul uh, drove his own kingdom right into the ground. So as, as chapter 16 opens, Samuel is still grieving and the Lord asked him, why, why are you still grieving? How long will you mourn for Saul? This is what the Lord says. How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, and I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. The Lord says it's time to move on. It's time to let this go, Samuel. You can't grieve for this anymore. Now, Yahweh was grieved over these events. We read that in the last chapter. But it's time to go on to the next man, the one that God has been preparing. Samuel hears the voice of God and Samuel dries his tears and he says, well, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. Saul has already threatened to kill Jonathan, his own son. You think he's going to stop and, and withhold his hand from killing Samuel if he is in the mood to do so? He won't think twice. If Samuel the elder prophet and priest in Israel takes a horn of oil and starts walking toward the territory of Judah, people are going to know what's up. If you're taking a horn of oil and walking toward Judah, there are people who know that it's been about 10 generations since Judah's sin. And we know that our king is supposed to come from Judah. 
And we know that uh, 10 generations have passed since, since the, the time where Judah was disqualified. So, so it's about time for our king to show up. Oh, and here's Samuel trotting off that way with a horn of oil. Something's up. Something's got to be going on. There's nothing subtle about that at all. But Yahweh says, well, take a heifer with you. And if anyone asks you, just say, I'm going to go to sacrifice. There's nothing, nothing to see here. It's just fine. So Samuel did, verse 4, Samuel did what Yahweh said, and he went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, do you come peaceably? Now, when he gets to Bethlehem, the people are trembling and they're terrified. What are they so scared of? It, Samuel shows up and they're like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. What's, I didn't do it. Whatever it is, we didn't do it. Well, they don't open him with, they don't welcome him with open arms. They think, surely he's here to bring God's judgment. You remember when Saul seized the spoils of Amalek, Saul wasn't alone in that. There were a lot of other people who, who seized the spoils. And perhaps they're wondering, maybe he's here to punish us for that. But, but Samuel says, no, I'm here in peace. And of course, the reason there can be peace is I'm coming with a sacrifice. That's the only way there can be peace is we're about to, we're about to have a sacrifice and we're about to get right with God. Verse five, so Samuel said, I've come peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to Yahweh. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Let's get together for worship, especially Jesse's family. Out of everybody, I want everybody there, but I especially want Jesse's family there, and I want Jesse's family to be consecrated. That means I want you to wash your clothes, and I want you to wash your bodies, and I want you to be purified coming to this, to this offering. And let's offer this heifer. What is, what is a heifer? It, it's a young female cow who has not born any calves yet, and there's one sacrifice in the Bible that specifies the use of a heifer. And that sacrifice is the purification offering. If you had become defiled by touching something unclean, if you had come in contact with a dead body, you would need to offer a purification offering. And that required a heifer. You burn the heifer on the altar, completely consumed it with fire. And to that fire, you add cedar, which smells good. You add hyssop, which has healing properties, has medicinal properties. And you add scarlet. You have to add red dye to this. And so when, when it's all burned up, you scrape all these ashes into water, you mix them with water, and what do you have? You have soap. You have fragrant soap with the animal fat that's burned up in the ashes and the cedar and the hyssop and the red dye, you have red soap. And you wash your body and you wash your clothes with this red soap and the dye um, would be on your skin after you're done with this ritual and after you're done with the sacrifice, so that everybody had known, for, everybody will know for a long time that you'd been through a purification, you'd been through a washing. So what is the purpose and what is the relevance of this kind of sacrifice on this day, on this occasion? Well, uh, the best I can do is that I, uh, Saul has defiled the land. Saul has corrupted the land. Saul has killed the land. He has brought covenant death on the people and on the land. And we all need to be washed and renewed. We need to be purified from the evil, the death, and the profane behavior of Saul. 
And, and, and that seems to, seems to make sense. So, so, so Samuel calls everyone together. He consecrates Jesse and his sons. He offers the red heifer or the, the, the heifer purification offering on the altar. And then, um, and then he continues in verse 6. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely Yahweh's anointed is before him. But Yahweh said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For Yahweh does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks at the heart. When the time comes for the congregation to gather for worship, we have that parade of, of Jesse's sons that's always illustrated in our children's Bible. And when, when Samuel sees the first tallest and best looking one, he says, ah, here we go. Thank you, Lord. You pointed him out. This is the one. This is the one we, we've got, the first one, Iliab. He must have been physically impressive, and he must have had some of the very same traits that Saul had. Remember, Saul was tall. Saul was good-looking. Samuel says, this is the man. Surely this is the one. But the Lord lets him know we're doing things a little bit differently this time. That's not the one. Uh, I'm not looking at the outside. I'm also looking at the inside. Man looks at the outside. Yahweh says, I look at the inside. Now, now the point of this, and so many commentaries go into this and say, well, Saul was handsome, but corrupt. And David, David is ugly, but holy. Well, that's not true because in just a little bit, we're going to read a description of David and David was good looking. He wasn't tall. Maybe he had unconventional good looks. He's ruddy. What, whatever that means, it means red or, or, or dusky, but, but he's good looking too. David is not an ogre. That's, that's not the point. David is not a holy ogre and, 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 um, and, and Sam, uh, Saul is this tall, good-looking, corrupt man. The point of this is that we can only look at the outside of a person. And when we're making judgments, that's all we can see. We can see their gifts. We can see their fruits. We can see their behavior. We can see the expression on their face. We can see how they act, but that's all we've got to go on. We can't look on their heart. Only God looks on the heart. And in seeing the heart, God can see how they're going to respond to correction how they're going to grow. He can see their future. What, what we hear here is that, that Yahweh looks at more information than we look at. For man looks at the outward appearance, but Yahweh looks on, on the heart. And by the way, that's not an invitation for us to try to look at the heart. I think I've heard that taught that way before, that we'll see if we were, wanted to be like God, then we ought to look at people's hearts. I can't even look at my own heart, right? I mean, I, I, I have trouble discerning my own motives sometime, much less anyone else, right? So you, that's not an invitation to, to, to look at other people's hearts and try to read their minds and try to know their intentions. We try to do that, but we fail and we get it wrong. All we have is the outside and that's okay. God knows that. God knows we can't see the heart. We can't read minds. But where he does see the heart, he tells Samuel, no, this isn't the one I want. I've got another one that, I'm, that I want. We're going to keep looking. Verse 8, so Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has Yahweh chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by and he said, neither has Yahweh chosen this one. The, thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, Yahweh has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all the young men here? Then he said, there remains yet the youngest. And there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and he brought him in. It's so confusing to me. Why, 
did, did Jesse have such a low view of his youngest son that he thought, oh, it can't be him. Whatever's going on here, it doesn't concern him. He's just a kid. He can't get it. He's not part of this. Let him take care of the sheep. Or maybe it's just the practical thing is somebody's got to look after the animals. But this is the one the Lord is looking for. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking. See, David's, David's not a troll. He's good looking. And Yahweh said, arise, anoint him. For this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of Yahweh came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramah. So they go through the whole line of sons until Samuel finds out that there's one more that's not there. He's left tending the sheep. Samuel tells Jesse, hurry up and get him. And when he comes, the Lord says, this is the one. Now, Jesse paraded seven sons before Samuel but it was the eighth son that was the one who was to be anointed king. David is the eighth son. Now, the number eight always makes us think of, of new creation, right? There are seven days in the week, but the day of resurrection is the eighth day. It's the first day of the new week. We worship on the eighth day. The Christian Sabbath is not the seventh day. It's the eighth day. It's the day of resurrection. It's the day of new creation. And now David is going to bring in a new creation, a new kingdom. We've already seen how Saul's three failures mirror the failure of Adam and the failure of Cain and the failure of the sons of Seth. And after their failures, God says, I've regretted that I made man on the earth. And God sends the flood. And with Noah, there's a new creation. Well, so Saul has sinned three times in three ways, mirroring those failures. And God has said, I've regretted I regret that I made Saul king. And then he sends judgment. And now there's a new creation with David at the helm. David is the eighth son. I don't think that's a mistake. I think that's, that's a, a, a clue God is giving us that David is the head of the new creation. David is like a new Noah. And he also points forward to his greater son, Jesus, who is uh, the king of the new creation. When, when Samuel anoints David, the spirit of the Lord rushes upon David and Samuel goes back home. But in the, in the Bible, when the spirit of Yahweh comes upon someone, it's so that they can be equipped to fight, so they can prophesy, so they can have wisdom to rule. And so for David in receiving the spirit of the Lord, he's getting a down payment on the kingdom. He, he's not going to be king quite yet. There's going to be some time here. He's being anointed as the king elect or the king designate. It's going to be 10 years or more before he actually begins to rule. But for now, he is the bearer of the spirit of the kingdom. The spirit's descent upon Saul and the spirit, I'm sorry, the spirit filling David is not some kind of indication that, okay, now life is going to get a whole lot easier for you and things are going to go um, really, really breezy. You can put it on cruise control now. In fact, it's the opposite. When the Holy Spirit fills you, he equips you for battle. The Spirit drives us into conflict. The Spirit drives us into warfare. When the Spirit came on Samson, it strengthened him so he could deal with the Philistines. When the Spirit uh, descends on Jesus at his baptism, uh, the Spirit then drives him in the wilderness to do battle with the devil. When the Spirit descends on the church in Acts, they go out to all the world to do battle. Uh, with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so the spirit coming on David now is the beginning of David's trouble. The spirit coming on David is now uh, setting gears in motion for conflict between him and Saul. 
The Spirit comes, conflict begins, and the Spirit gives you strength, and the Spirit gives you courage to take responsibility for the task at hand. Now, one of the immediate causes of trouble for David in his life is going to be the fact that while David has received the Spirit, Saul has the Spirit of God taken away from him. Verse 14, but the Spirit of Yahweh departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from Yahweh troubled him. And Saul's servant said to him, surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of his servants answered and said, look, I have seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite who is skillful in playing, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and Yahweh is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son David who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and he sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Then Saul said to Jesse, saying, please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp and play it with his hand. Then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would depart from him. There's an exchange of spirits for Saul here. The Holy Spirit is taken away, and the Bible says a troubling spirit is sent upon him. Whether that troubling spirit, a spirit can be a mood, it might also be a demonic spirit. I don't know. It, it could be one or the other, and I'm, I'm fine with both. But the way we see Saul behaving from here might describe his behavior we, we might say he's got some kind of mental illness. When we watch him, he's paranoid. He has these mood swings, these irrational responses. He, he has no sense of proportion. Saul, from here on, is not a healthy man. And what is the source of all this trouble for Saul? The source surely must be not that simply that God has sent him this, this spirit, this uh, this. Um, this troubling, distressing spirit, but, but Saul has got a weight, a crushing weight of guilt that he hasn't dealt with. We have seen him over and over and over confronted with his sin and he has failed to confess it and he just walks away. You know, you are not built to carry your own guilt. You are not built to have uh, the, the weight and the distress and the anxiety of everything that you have ever done wrong sitting on your shoulders and keeping you awake at night. It will indeed drive you to insanity, just as it did Saul. Uh, that's why we have Jesus. Jesus carries our guilt. Jesus carries the weight of our sin. You cannot do it. You, you will be a basket case. You will be someone who can't function. And that's the road that Saul is headed down because he's had opportunities to sacrifice. He's had opportunities to repent. He's had opportunities to deal with this stuff 
And he hasn't dealt with it. And it's all just getting worse and worse and worse. And it's weighing on him because he is living in rebellion against God. It has, it has changed his brain chemistry to the point where he can't even think clearly. And, and certainly unmanaged sin will drive you to this. Saul is mentally disturbed because of his, by the way, let me say what doesn't, uh, let me say what I assume that I didn't say. That means you need to confess your sins to the Lord Jesus and leave them there and walk away and forget them, right? Because he forgets them. You're not built to carry the stuff that you're dealing with and is weighing down your heart and destroying you and your fellowship with other people and with God. Leave it. When we confess our sins together, leave it there and walk away. Walk away from it. Don't keep dragging it up. The devil wants to. He's the accuser. He likes to drag things up. Don't let him. Put him behind you and say, I rebuke you in the name of the Lord Jesus who's forgiven me for all these things that you keep bringing up. And I'm going to be happy because I'm forgiven. Saul didn't do that. Saul then is driven uh, to insanity. And he's disturbed because of his wickedness. And one of the things that helps him though, one of the things that soothes his spirit is to hear David pluck his lyre or his harp. He has a stringed instrument that he plucks and plays. David is not only a great shepherd, not only is he a great warrior, but he's also a great musician. Boys, don't ever let anybody tell you that musicians are weak or effete or um, pansies. Musicians are real men. We've got a musician here that could play a play guitar, play a lyre, play a harp, and then go kill a bear and kill a giant and kill a lion. Tell, tell a Tell, tell David he's a sissy. I dare you. you know? tell, tell him he's a sissy. He's not. Yeah, he's an artist and he's also a man and he's a strong man. And so David plays and when Saul hears the music, Saul's mood is pacified. There's a great deal to be said here about the therapeutic role of music and we don't have a lot of time to go into that today, but, but music, especially in the congregational setting, serves a purpose of Yes, expressing your praise to God, but number two, congregational singing. When we're all singing together, singing the same thing, it has the effect of encouraging the saints. We strengthen each other. My faith is strengthened. And by the way, the singing today was great. Uh, so far, we got some more songs to sing, but it, it emboldens me. It, it strengthens me. It feeds my heart when I hear you sing. I am encouraged when I hear you sing and my heart is lifted and all of our hearts are lifted. We're all encouraged when we're all singing true things, biblical things at the same time. This is why when we sing together, this is why you don't mumble. This is why you don't whisper. This is why you don't just stare into space. Well, you might, you say, well, I'm, I'm not a singer. I, I don't care. None of us are, are Pavarotti. Uh, but, but in fact, there's no such thing as not a singer in the church. Christians are singers. Um, none of us are professionals, but God's people sing. You say, oh, I really don't feel like singing. That's okay. It's not about you. It's, it's about everybody around you. And you're discouraging them by whispering and mumbling and, and not being engaged. When we sing and sing together, lift up your voice as best you can and sing boldly and it strengthens and it encourages the saints around you and the saints in, in the congregation. And if you can't sing, just shout the words as loud as you can somewhere near the note and none of us will make fun of you. Um, 
music is therapy and music is encouraging. Here's a testimony to that and, um, and it's important. Here, David, David has the spirit of God resting upon him and he's sent to soothe the one who has had the spirit of God depart from him. Saul is so impressed with David that he makes him his right-hand man. He makes him his armor bearer, which was like a ceremonial uh, type of position. David would not have actually gone to the battlefield with him. I'm sure that he would have had lots of, lots of armor bearers in, this, in, this, um, in his court. But he takes David into his house, and there's an adoption scene similar to when Samuel was adopted by Eli many chapters ago. Jesse, David's father, sends bread. He sends wine. And he sends a young goat, a, a sacrificial young goat symbolizing the gift of his son to the house of Saul. David is being transferred from Jesse's house to Saul's house. And Saul loves him greatly, the Bible says. David is a lovable guy. He has an attractive personality. People want David around. Even Saul wants him around at this point. Now that's going to change. The relationship is going to change. But here from the start, David is taking responsibility for tending to Saul's needs. David is a man who, like Jonathan, who, like Samuel, sees a need and fills it. Now I've alluded to this before, but I'm going to wrap this up here. I, I didn't get to spend a lot of time on it so far in our study. But wrapping up this whole section of 1 Samuel, the story and life of Saul before we get on to David. The contrast that we're going to see between David and Saul, again, it's not that David doesn't sin and Saul does sin. That's not the point. David sins. The difference is Saul does not take responsibility for his sins. He makes excuses. David does take responsibility. Avoiding responsibility and making excuses is a terrible, deadly habit that, if left unchecked, will lead you to the same hell that Saul was bound for. Making excuses as a habit, rather than dealing with your sin the right way, will lead you to hell. It started with Adam. It continued with Cain. Aaron was good at it. Saul was an expert at excuse making. And it comes down to us today. And so we need to diagnose our own habits. When there's a crisis or conflict, who am I? What do I do? Do I immediately start making excuses? Or am I taking responsibility? And when I, when I make a go of repentance, Am I excusing myself? Am I, am I listing everyone and everything who put me in the position that I am in? When I feel guilty about something, do I say, well, you know, Lord, you kind of gave me this problem and this problem to deal with. My only solution was this thing over here. So cut me some slack. Give me a break, Lord, because kind of, if you want to be honest about it, it's your fault and it's this person's fault and it's this situation, this other thing, and you put me in this position. But I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but you got to know, you got to take all this into account. You see, that's excuse making. It's this very same thing that, that uh, God condemns here in the life of Saul. Repentance does not make excuses. Genuine repentance takes ownership and says, I messed up. I failed. This is all on me. No, you know, maybe somebody else sinned. Maybe somebody else made a mess. But you know, at the end of it, I sinned and I need forgiveness for my sin. And I need to make restitution and I need to make it right. The kind of men and women that God is calling for, as we've seen so far in this study, the kind of men and women that God needs, that God is calling for, are like David, 
are like Samuel, are like Jonathan, are like Hannah, remember her, who took responsibility. They all point us toward Jesus. Jesus takes responsibility for sins he didn't even commit. Jesus takes responsibility for us to lead and guide and protect and feed us. And that's what his people do. You see a problem, you see a crisis, you see a mess, own it. Take responsibility, cut out the excuses, take responsibility. And we'll see David do this more and more in our study. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and give you thanks for these stories that point us to your son, Jesus. And we pray that as we learn, that we would grow more and more into his image and likeness. So Father, strengthen us and give us your spirit the way that you gave David your spirit. Give us your spirit so that we might be equipped for the fight, for the conflict you have set before us. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.